Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back to our study of the Evergatinos. And we're picking up once again uh, with the last little section of Hypothesis 19. And if you remember, we've been discussing uh, obedience and its importance uh, to the spiritual life. And this will be tied intimately with Hypothesis 20, uh, which we'll discuss in greater detail, uh, seeking advice from from elders and the value of, of that in the spiritual life. And uh, so they're, they're pretty closely tied together. But tonight we're picking up uh, with letter E on page 147, if you're following along in the text, with a little quote from St. John Cassian, one of my favorites. And uh, we just read through his conferences not too long ago here at the Oratory. He writes, with no other fault does the devil so effectively pull man down into the abyss of corruption as he does by persuading one to disregard the conduct of his life according to the teachings and counsel of the fathers, but rather to follow his own will. For he who follows his own judgment and opinion will never proceed with certainty, but will stumble over many obstacles and be deluded encountering many terrifying dangers, as though walking continually in darkness. So Cassian doesn't beat around the, the bush. There's, and he, among all the fathers, I think he's one of the clearest of teachers, uh, but uh, he's straight to the point here that we really make ourselves vulnerable in the spiritual life by simply pursuing our own judgment and our own opinion about things. And that was, is true of whether one is a monk or one is living within the world, uh, that when we, we don't see all ends, no matter how clearly we see things or how deeply we are engaged in the spiritual life. And when it comes to making decisions uh, in our life or, or simply examining our life on a day-to-day basis and our response uh, to the gospel and our response to God's call in terms of the spiritual life, that we can easily become deluded about who we are and what it is that we are doing and how how well we are responding to the gospel. And uh, in the second paragraph, he becomes even stronger in his language, not that the first paragraph wasn't strong enough, that uh, the devil uses this as an uh, an opportunity to trip us up. Uh, but in the second, he, he really exposes the foolishness of it. 
We must heed this lesson following the example of the arts and sciences of mankind. That is, if we are unable to learn by ourselves things of the arts and sciences, even though we can examine them with our hands, but have need of a good teacher to show us every single thing, how then would it not be foolish and idiotic to believe that we are able to succeed in learning the spiritual arts, which are more difficult and demanding than all the arts and sciences without a teacher? The spiritual arts are not empirical or visible, as are all those arts which concern themselves with the physical world, but are invisible and hidden, having as their aim the soul and as their purpose making it godlike. Failure at these arts does not bring about temporary harm, but occasions the loss of the soul and eternal death and condemnation. So as I said, he doesn't beat around the bush that there is a kind of idiocy, uh, he tells us, in imagining that we would not need the kind of guidance and direction that we even eagerly pursue in our study of worldly arts and sciences. And we've talked about this many times before in regards to asceticism as a whole, that this is really a blind spot for us, that in so many other areas of our life, we, we recognize the need for exercising uh, a certain aptitude, or in this case, in seeking out the counsel and the guidance of those who have long experience, that we don't question the need for that. But when it comes to the spiritual life, uh, often we think that it should be spontaneous, that there is not any particular discipline that is needed, and that we could guide ourselves uh, along this path without, in some ways, uh, meeting obstacles or worse, you know, placing our soul in jeopardy. And uh, again, I think with the individualism that's sort of prevalent in our own day and touches really every aspect of life, but certainly the spiritual life as well. I think uh, obedience is often set aside or it's unclear how one would live it within the world. You know, maybe there's a greater sense of how one would live it within a religious community or as a priest in a diocese, but how does one live obedience on a day-to-day -day basis in marriage or in this single life or simply seeking to live out the spiritual life as a whole? And, uh, and so, you know, there is that individualism that I think uh, afflicts us and it becomes very hard to embrace it because there's also a kind of negative connotation that has developed with the, the word obedience itself, that uh, often it is this kind of slavishness that we think of or somebody using their authority to uh, bend another person's will to their own and that it becomes a means of manipulation rather than uh, guidance and uh, a way of uh, supporting another within the spiritual life. And uh, so when I think we read the fathers, we gain, begin to gain a certain clarity. Uh, not only is it important for us, uh, but the weight and the responsibility of those who are placed in the charge of souls is, is no light thing uh, that it, you know, bears within it the responsibility of, of living the life fully. And having lived for years under obedience before one would take the responsibility of guiding another. Anything about what uh, Cassian has to say here? Or somebody asking how to get on Zoom. 
you mind if I just take a second and help them out here? Any thoughts though on To send this off to them quickly. Okay, Daniel Allen has a question. I'm sorry, am I supposed to be typing it? Yeah, or? that would be helpful. Uh, just, uh, well, not now that you're already okay. asking your question, but for as we move ahead, uh, we've tried to re refashion how we're putting together the questions just to help with the flow of, of the group as well as to keep us moving along in the text. So if you can sort of be formulating your question a little bit and then put up your virtual hand when I call and you just hit enter and send uh, the question or comment and I'll be able to look it over and we'll still open it up if you want to follow up with a second question or clarify what you would ask. But go ahead, Daniel. Okay. Um how, I, I guess, I don't know how, but um, the obedience and the, and that you're talking about here, it's mm -hmm. just the individualism, I think is what you were saying. One of the things I find really challenging at times, and I think it's just challenging because it's maybe the, the kind of the era we're brought up in is, mm -hmm. um, is Lent. And when it's like, what are you giving up for Lent? What are you doing? What are you choosing? And I've always found that really, um, you know, kind of difficult so it's really just interesting to listen to this it's made me think a lot probably because we're reading it during lent mm -hmm. on just doing the things that are recommended you know by the church instead of trying to like figure it out for yourself right and even even doing what the church puts forward often isn't where people look first uh you know in terms of fasting prayer and almsgiving uh often it's more of a, an individual choice about you know, what they're going to give up from their day-to-day -day life and rarely something that's brought to the confessional or spiritual direction, I think. And uh, it's become almost popularized, you know, this idea of giving something up for you know, a 40-day period of time, usually something that one likes or uh, surrounding food or entertainment, but not necessarily, I don't know if we spend a lot of time perhaps discerning what would be most helpful to us in the spiritual life in terms of what's needed the most, maybe what is the passion that we struggle with uh, in, in our life and what would be helpful in overcoming it. And, uh, and so I think reading a text like this is helpful. Uh, and the text that I sent out to you uh, of Cassian's Eight Vices, I don't know if many of you got that mail, the little booklet, uh, from the Philoclea, from the first volume. Uh, it's just a wonderful thing to read, I think, in terms of gaining a great, greater grasp of the passions, how they manifest themselves, and even what the Father's put forward in terms of struggling with them. So as we're even thinking about, you know, the Lenten discipline or our spiritual discipline as a whole, what we need to focus on, that's a wonderful guide to have at hand. Uh, but I think when we think of, of obedience as a whole, you know, even within married life, you know, this kind of fidelity to the life itself and one's vows and uh, fidelity in, uh, in the service of each other and lifting each other up, especially in the spiritual life as well as emotionally. And, uh, and then in raising children, you know, uh, 
being mutually obedient in, in that task as one of you know the greatest charges that a person can be given, which is the care of a, of a little one, of an infant. And, uh, and so there are a lot of different ways, I think certainly where you know, obedience comes into play as well as uh, simply looking at the, at the gospel and, and seeking to live it fully. And, uh, and there's no lack of writing among the fathers in this regard in terms of how, how it is to be lived. All right. Why don't we move on to St. Maximus then? Letter F on the bottom of page 147 for those who just joined. God, the word of God, the Father, Jesus Christ, is found mystically in each of his own commandments. And God, the Father, is by nature entirely inseparable from his word. Therefore, one who receives the divine commandment and applies it receives also the word of God who exists in it. Since through the commandments one receives the word, he receives it at the same time, he receives at the same time the Father, who by nature exists with God the Word. Moreover, he receives the Holy Spirit, which coexists by nature with him. The Holy Gospel says, in other words, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. Therefore, he who receives the commandment and performs it has received and contains mystically within himself the Holy Trinity. What a magnificent paragraph from Maximus the Confessor. And I think it takes obedience to another level for us, you know, rather than, you know, thinking about it simply in terms of our, in an abstracted way, fulfilling certain demands or commandments about the spiritual life, we realize how intimately this is connected, uh, both with God's revelation of himself, but also the intimacy that we share with God, uh, and that we, our participation in the very life of the most holy trinity, that God is present in his commands, and the word that he speaks to us, and making himself known to us in this radical way, and in the gift of the spirit to be faithful to that word. And this draws us mystically, Maximus is telling us, into the very life of the Most Holy Trinity. We are temples of God, and, uh, and we are drawn into the life of God himself in and through our obedience. And again, we, I think we have this tendency to disconnect uh, God from his revelation of himself, that we will, you know, Christianity is not simply a set of roles or an ideology or a philosophy. It's far more than that to us. And the way that we understand that then affects the way that we understand the living of the life and a virtue such as obedience, that in living uh, the commandments, we are embracing them Again, not in a detached fashion, but understanding that it's fundamentally relational for us. We are responding to a specific call, and in embracing that call are being drawn into the life of the Holy Trinity itself, which makes it something beautiful. I think it's we're beginning to see in the Father's language of desire uh, and what is offered to us in and through embracing this life is that one can love something like all the ascetical practices, love 
a fasting, love prayer, and love obedience, that one can begin to see obedience as something that one would seek out the opportunities to live in such a fashion that you, on a daily basis, had the opportunity to exercise this virtue. And we're seeking from the moment that you would arise for an opportunity to exercise it in whatever uh, station in life we might find ourselves. Ambrose. I remember reading St. Francis de Sales recommending that readily assenting to request even our, of our inferiors, even one's small children, is a kind of obedience. It is submitting our will to that of another. Yes, absolutely. And, and this, he's very much like Philip Neary. And the two of them, I think you remember, were they, they knew each other. And Francis de Sales actually started an oratory before being made uh, a, a bishop. Uh, but their, their view of the spiritual life is very similar in this regard. But Philip echoed this in his, in his maxims as well, that we're not just called to live in obedience to our superiors, those who are placed over us by, by their particular office, but our obedience is to be to equals as well as to those who are inferior, like are in age or an office to us. And I think we begin to see that this kind of vision of things then allows us to broaden out our view of the practice of obedience in our day-to-day -day life, that we are to have this response, responsiveness and teachability, that we, in our, we don't fall into a kind of spirit of pride in the sense that we ever believe that we've surpassed the need for learning or to be guided by another. And that God could use any individual in our life and often uses very humble instruments to guide us along that path to sanctity. So being attentive to whoever comes along our, our path. And, uh, and, you know, sometimes it can be a, a person like for here at the oratory, a person who comes into the building, or maybe it's a homeless person or somebody in need. And we're, you know, we engage on a very personal level not in this condescending fashion, you know, as really we're bending down to serve another, but we are engaging uh, another per person of equal dignity. And so to be attentive to them uh, as we are attentive to, to all others, including those who would be far above us uh, in terms of office. And so there, there's something, you know, about obedience then that allows us, I think, to also see the dignity of the other person. While all at the same, at the same moment, keeping us humble. So very good point. Uh, let's see, uh, Sarah writes, Elder Pisces is a great example of this, giving over his will to a small child in an act of obedience. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, and we do see it often within the life of, of the saints, you know, this real care and the responsiveness to, to others uh, that are not only, again, in their charge, uh, you know, but th those who they simply come into contact with on a day-to-day -day basis. The teachability, I think, is a, a really important thing because I think in our day and age, we approach others with a kind of suspicion you know, that there is a, a kind of lack of charity in the way that we approach others in that regard. 
that we, when we put up our defenses uh, prior to engaging the other. Uh, and when we do that, we show a fundamental disrespect for the person that stands before us. And we aren't likely to hear what they are going to tell us if we've already formed and fashioned in our mind something about who they are or what they might want from us. And, uh, and so, you know, being teachable, you know, is in a sense being open to receive from others what God might be guiding them to, to offer us. And that means, love, you know, approaching them with a kind of charity, uh, you know, a, a kind of generosity of spirit is, I think, the phrase I was looking for, so that we're able to receive them not uh, under this cloak uh, of suspicion. And, you know, I realized this one day in an unfortunate manner, there, there was a, a homeless guy who came into the oratory and started, he started to tell me about his particular needs. And I was just standing there and listening to him as he was telling me what he was saying. And he sort of broke out and he sweat and he said, you're making me nervous. And I said, I didn't say, I didn't say a word, you know, to him at that point yet. And but I think we have to, it sort of showed me something that, you know, our fundamental demeanor, my resting face can be sort of severe. Uh, my dad was a little bit like that too. But we have to, you know, when we receive another, we have to be attentive to uh, receiving them with the kind of hospitality and love and charity so that we don't put them on the defensive. And, uh, and I think we can naturally begin to do that in our day and age. We don't, it's not easy for us to trust or be vulnerable in our time uh, when anybody's asking us for, for something or not even asking us for something. If it's somebody that we don't know and simply wants to talk to us, we can immediately put up the defenses. Okay. Any other thoughts? All right. Yes, Rachel. It seems in this type of obedience, Rachel writes, to the reality of the person right in front of you, God is not only trying to teach you something, but he is offering himself. This is the perfect example of what St. Maximus just said. Yes, absolutely. To, to receive another as if one is receiving Christ and indeed is receiving him. And, uh, you know, I think we've mentioned in a previous group, uh, St. Uh, Teresa of Calcutta uh, saw this very clearly, you know, that, again, she wasn't simply condescending, you know, from her position to care for the poor and those who were dying, that she was, you know, receiving them and rece understanding that she was receiving something greater even that she was giving. You know, that there, it was a graced moment for her. And I think maybe sometimes we don't see that, that our responsiveness and our obedience to that moment, to the need in the moment and the need of the other, our obedience to love itself, of what, what comes back to us. And maybe we don't see it because we don't offer it uh, freely. Maybe we haven't tasted it that frequently where we have in kind of an uninhibited way uh, or with the eyes that have the, uh, uh, the clarity of faith that allows to see the dignity of the other person, where we, we begin to realize that, that God is giving us something in and through this encounter. 
And as a priest, I, I've come to experience it over the course of the years, most often within the confessional. And you, you think, you know, when you're in there for long hours at first, you're very much aware of the fatigue of it, especially if the confessional is sort of hot and stuffy and you're tired and you've been in there for hours and you're, you're beyond the time that's scheduled. And, uh, and so you begin, you can get very focused upon yourself. Uh, but over time, if you sort of stretch those boundaries uh, where you're not impeded by anything, where you can stay as long as you need to stay, where you can say to everybody online, I'm gonna be here until you're all through, so relax. And when you can do that, it allows you to enter into that experience as priest, and for the priest here, I'm sure would agree, to enter into it freely and in this uninhibited fashion and in a prayerful way. And you're able to engage each person as they're coming in as a person, not simply a line of people that you have to get through uh, in order to be finished with a task. That it does become a really powerful encounter, uh, not only for the person and God in and through the sacrament, but for the priest who's immersed in that reality over and over again over the course of hours you begin to see that there's an enormous amount of grace that is received through that. And so the obedience to one's identity as a priest is something that is life-giving and is grace-filled. And I think for parents too, you know, you think about, you know, the care of little children, and I think parents are pushed even further in that regard, emotionally and physically, uh, of all the parents that I've talked to over, over the years, you know, I think a lot of them are, there are hidden saints because often they are stretched to these unimaginable levels. And when you're fatigued and there's an you know, inconsolable child, you, know, you have very little sleep, you haven't showered or eaten yourself and, or, you know, or where the child is acting up within this, a store or something like that, or within church, it almost takes a kind of heroic patience at times and not to lose sight of who it is that you're serving at that moment, who's in your care and to be able to engage them in it. It's, it's no small, small thing. Daniel. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. Just prior to Rachel's. Okay, I see it. Would it be correct to equate obedience then as laying aside one's own ego and preference to respond to the need of the other? Not to oversimplify the topic, but also trying to understand the common theme among the examples presented. Yeah, I think certainly that's a part of it, you know, because there is a kind of dying to self and sin, one's own willfulness, as we hear come through the text over and over again. And I think it is often our ego that seeks to push itself center stage again, you know, our own particular judgment of a situation, set of circumstances, or another person. And, you know, a, a situation could be, be very difficult for any number of reasons. And we aren't called, I think, to try to control and shape them. 
uh, or to necessarily make them pretty. And not that we could actually do that anyways. I mean, sometimes, you know, people's life might be out of control or you might encounter someone who's very angry. And I think we are called to enter into those circumstances where it does require setting aside our ego and not getting on the defensive or even thinking that, you know, simply because the person is being overtly aggressive with us, that we understand where they are coming from or what's motivating that aggressiveness. That's a, that's a really hard thing to do, to set aside one's ego at that point when you're being yelled at. Uh, and, uh, and I've been yelled at quite a few, few times about quite a few things. And, you know, I think almost in this kind of elastic way, you jump back to that position of, you know, your ego wanting to defend yourself and your own, own dignity against what the other person is doing. And so, you know, obedience, I think, is holding fast, certainly, to what Christ has taught us in terms of how we engage the other in the sense of going the extra mile, you know, of turning the other cheek. Uh, and, you know, I think there are many opportunities for us on any, any given day to do that in large and small, small ways. And so, you know, this is where our love of obedience and cultivating it in our day-to-day -day life, spiritual reading, our prayer life, uh, praying for the grace of it until it becomes something that we love and becomes part of our, our character. This is how we view life and view others and how we seek to serve God. And again, you know, the intimacy aspect of this with God becomes, you know, very important. Christ himself says, you know, he who uh, hears the word of my father and does it is my mother, brother, sister, wife, child you know it's this obedience brings with a brings with it a kind of deep intimacy with the lord it's just not our natural connections with others that are to bind us together okay from the gerontcon Abba Joseph, the Thebite, said that three things are important before God. First, when a man becomes ill and is beset by trials, but endures them gratefully. The second is when a man performs all his deeds in purity before God without their involving anything human. The third is when someone submits to a spiritual father and denies his own will entirely. Indeed, such a man has one crown more. So all of these are good, and all these uh, things are important for the spiritual life uh, and challenging in their own right, you know, to experience illness and to be able to receive that from the hand of God, uh, to recognize the providence of God within it, and to be able to embrace it in that kind of spirit. Uh, to be able to endure it and to endure it in love. Uh, again, not an, an easy thing to do, but it shows a, a deep kind of, of faith to be able to do so uh, and to be able to receive that trial and to take hold of it. Second, you know, a person who performs the deed in purity before God without there involving anything human, so there, that there isn't any other 
motivation, I think he's saying here, other than our desire to please God. And so with this kind of purity of heart that we, we want to do the will of God in our day-to-day -day life. But the final one, he says, is then submitting our will in a, a very concrete way to a spiritual father that means denying our own will entirely, that this is a crown above and beyond the others. Uh, and we see this again, you know, from the earlier paragraphs in the hypothesis that this kind of responsiveness conforms us to Christ, the crucified one, the one who empties himself uh, of his dignity, embraces the form of a slave, a servant, and becomes obedient unto death itself. That our, our willingness to let go of our will entirely, to deny it, uh, and give it over to another, it gives a, a crown, another crown, because it conforms us even more perfectly to Christ. So it's not in any way diminishing the, the virtue or the value of the first two put before us, but I, I think the uh, Abba Joseph is putting, you know, showing us here how elevated obedience should be in our, our view of the spiritual life. And again, not in an abstract way, but because of our seeing it being made manifest in Christ and becoming the vehicle of this perfect self-emptying love. And this is why we value it. You know, it, it enables us to give ourselves over to God and others without our own ego getting in the way. Daniel, did you have another question or is your hand still up? Sorry, no, I didn't lower oh, it. Okay, that's fine. An elder said one should become like a camel, lifting one's sins and bound by obedience, following him who knows the way of God. Uh, so always an interesting image. I think this is an easy one for us to carry along. You know, okay, what's obedience to become like a camel? And, you know, that uh, we are able uh, to lift the heavy burden uh, of one sin and, uh, you know, to carry it bound by obedience, following another, you know, following Christ along the path that he has set before us or following the elder who knows the way to God because of his experiential knowledge. And so, you know, a beast of burden, uh, a camel, you know, doesn't analyze, you know, what it is that he's carrying and why, that he is responsive to the, the directions and the guidance of the one who's leading him. And so in a similar way, I think he's saying here that you know, our trust in the one who's guiding us makes us willing then to take up the burden of our sin, but also to allow ourselves to be guided along the path that leads us to life and to healing. Probably not a favorite image of, of many people. I found even the image of being sheep is not pleasant for a lot of people either. You know, most people see sheep as sort of stupid animals, you know, dumb or dirty animals. And so sometimes that image doesn't resonate with them, but I'm sure uh, the image of camel resonates even less than being a sheep. Forest. Is there a footnote about the camel in your English translation? Yes, actually, uh, I think, well, I thought there was, yes. 
Beast of Burden carries a large burden and also endures hardship on the journey and faithfully follows its guide. So pretty much what we said, also because it remembers well and loves those who've done good to it. And contrarywise, is hostile to those who have harmed it. And for this reason, the elder says here, become like a camel. And that is in order to be saved. Remember the burden of your sins and follow faithfully the one who knows the way to God. Oh, I'm glad you draw, drew our attention to that. Uh, I did read it, but uh, I forgot about it. And what a wonderful uh, second uh, aspect of this, you know, the, the remembering well and loving those who've done us good, that the camel uh, has a kind of memory for that. And likewise, for the one who has treated it poorly or beat it, you know, that there's a memory of that as well. And so uh, it's in a very similar way. It is uh, very much like the, the shepherd and the sheep that we hear in the gospel. They hear his voice, you know, that there is a love and affection that the shepherd has for the flock and each individual sheep in a similar way. You know, the one who's responsible for the camel is to, to treat it well because they know, you know, to be treated well, then the camel's going to be most responsive. But we on our part, you know, to, are to remember and to love those who have treated us well and guided us in the spiritual life. Again, you know, I think that's a great footnote because it brings in the personal element to this again for us. You know, certainly Maximus did it for us in our relationship with God and what that draws us into, what obedience draws us into. But here, it also makes it very personal for us too. You know, that the interaction with one who is our elder or to whom we play, under whom we place ourselves in obedience is fundamentally a relationship of love and uh, in both directions, in terms of how the elder treats the disciple and the disciple, how the disciple responds to the elder. Okay. Great, great. Uh, thanks for bringing that to our attention, Forrest. Appreciate that. Number three, a brother asked an elder, I perform all my duties in my cell, yet I receive no consolation from God. The elder answered him, this happens to you because though you work on yourself, you are still interested and desire your will to be done. The brother asked a second time, what then, father, do you suggest that I should do? The elder answered, go and attach yourself to a man who fears God and humble yourself before him, discarding totally your will. Then you will experience the consolation which is from God. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about this in the past, that in the spiritual life, we can be willful in the, in the way that we take things up or what we take up in the spiritual life, how we prioritize things, what we see as valuable in terms of our relationship with God. And, you know, as I was reading this, it made me think of the rich young man in, in the gospel, that Christ looked upon him with love that in many ways he had kept the commandments and lived this virtuous life and yet could not place himself as it were under Christ. Go sell all you have, come, come follow me. And we were told that he goes away sad, that he could not let go of the life that he had created for himself. 
and even though he was of virtuous character, that he was not able to let go of his will in this fundamental and extraordinary way to let go of what was and the security of it in order to, to follow Christ himself. So he has had the, he who is truth before him and was not able to see God within him, did not quite have the faith to be able to respond and to let go of all those things. And, uh, and so again, you know, it's a very powerful image as, you know, is even the, the, the one we just looked at, the, the camel. And th again, thinking about this in one's day-to-day -day life and how we treat others and how we, we respond to, to others who ask that obedience of us. You know, where, where are we coming from? Uh, you know, in, in the sense of what is the motivation that lies at the depths of our hearts in our response to God or how God is acting in our life and how are we engaging others too, you know, from whatever position we might be in relationship to them? Are we that gentle and loving and tender soul guiding them and supporting them? And uh, or, or are we the, and are we the obedient and loving servant when, when asked to respond to the guidance of another? You know, it's, I think I've mentioned this before, it can be hard for young men or young women entering into religious life in our, our day. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of different reasons for this. I think cultural and, you know, what goes on in sort of the formation within family. But I think even in terms of putting off vocations, uh, you know, for the most part now, a college degree is required. And then once you get out of college, you typically have to pay off your debt. And so some people are putting off their vocation to a very late age. And not that I see problem with late vocations, but it can be very, sometimes very difficult to enter into this spirit, not because the individual is bad, but because often they're simply set in their ways from having ordered their own life in accord with their own will. And it's not as easy to step out of that. Whereas sometimes those who enter into a community, while they might lack something in maturity, they, they can be teachable. You know, that sometimes they can have that docile spirit, although there's no guarantee of that in our day, of course. But uh, you can understand why in the past, I think uh, they, they did set certain age limits because it would, the life of obedience could be very difficult for someone entering in at a later age. Forced. Marriage vocations are delayed too. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned that uh, because they're, they're being delayed and delayed more and more. And certainly this has uh, a lot of repercussions for, for the relationship too. But I think there is something about, you know, a young couple entering into marriage and, you know, maturing together in that role and, uh, and being, you know, formable and having maybe the guidance of elders, say their, their parents who raised them, you know, in close proximity too, which was often the case in, in the past that the extended family 
was there to offer guidance, if only by their example, you know, and, and rooted in their own experience and trials. And uh, I think often, you know, in the couples that I've talked to over the years that you see that sometimes there is this uh, concern for security that because I think they see the divorce rate, they, they want to have security on multiple levels about the other person. They want financial security. Uh, and uh, even in terms of, you know, on an intimate level, you know, cohabitation, you know, I think, you know, early on when I was doing a lot of weddings, I'd say over 90% of the couples coming uh, to prepare were cohabitating. And for a priest, that's a pretty challenging reality to deal with, uh, you know, because already they've sort of embraced this lifestyle according to their will. You know, certainly it's not the, the will of the church uh, or certainly God, you know, in terms of the, the nature of the intimacy there of, of living together. But I, I think the, the thought there is to sort of practice at marriage, you know, and uh doesn't work that way in terms of, I think, our emotional uh, development, as well as intimacy, the development of intimacy between a couple. And sometimes those trials in the early life together can bind a couple together. That mutual experience of going through trials together, and even if they were very difficult and pushed them to the limits, you know, at a later time can be the very thing that binds, binds them together. Let's see, somebody put up a comment here, David Robles. Uh, Father David, may, maybe it would be useful to point out that we do not obey the commandments as an exercise in ethics, right? Or finishing a to-do list, a set of rules, a legalistic requirement. For the Father, Father's obedience to the commandments is something dynamic, nothing less than our participation in the life of the Holy Trinity. Yes, and that's what Maximus said a little bit earlier. Uh, the commandments are also therapeutic, absolutely. Following them heals us. And finally, we have the promise of the Lord himself, who in the Gospel of John tells us, whoever obeys his commandments is the one who loves me. And the Lord promises that he and his father will come into the heart of such a one and dwell in him. Well, be beautifully put. Uh, on multiple levels, you know, that it's, again, not simply ethical or legalistic requirement, uh, but dynamic, that it draws us into the life of the Trinity, therapeutic, that there is something healing by embracing the will of God and living in the truth is something that brings healing, uh, but that also draws, uh, as he mentions here again, you know, God uh, into us, that we become God's dwelling place that God will come to serve us, we are told, uh, in the Gospel of John. So beautifully put. And again, you know, I think it reframes obedience for us here in a, in a beautiful way. You know, it allows us to see it on all these different levels that are deeply personal and not legalistic in the way that we often will, will look at it or oppressive. Rachel, did you have another thought? I saw your hand go up and down again. You said you were going to quit that. You're so disobedient. <laughs> uh, obedience seems to be very closely related to purity of heart. David Revels just expanded on that point, I think. Yes, definitely. You know, I think 
for Cassian, who we started with here tonight, you know, purity of heart was a key and immediate goal of the spiritual life uh, because it allows us to have a kind of clarity of vision that, you know, our uh, overcoming the passions and ordering, you know, our desire, our love toward God allows us to, to see the truth and to embrace it. And, uh, and so it is closely related to, to purity of heart. And this is why we engage in, part of why we engage in the ascetical life, you know, that we might come to see and know God's will with a clarity and embrace it with love. So it's not seen as something that's simply being put upon us, but something that's being given to us, as David put in the previous comment, that actually brings us all of these beautiful gifts, healing, intimacy with God. Any other comments or questions before we move on? Or any follow-ups to previous questions? Okay. St. Ephraim the Syrian. Uh, since we do not wish to endure the smallest of afflictions for the sake of the Lord, we fall against our wills to many and bad afflictions. And since we do not want to abandon our own wills for the sake of the Lord, we bring on ourselves damage to our souls and destruction. Moreover, because we do not allow ourselves to be obedient and to suffer scorn for the sake of the Lord, we deprive ourselves to the of the consolation of the righteous. And since we will not be obedient to the counsel of those who set laws over us for the sake of the Lord, we make ourselves playthings of the evil demons. By not allowing ourselves the strict rearing symbolized by the rod, the oven of fire, which is never extinguished and from which there will never be any consolation, shall consume us. Wow, so challenging, but again, you know, beautiful paragraph, because again, you know, it is, is communicating to us that there's something here that we should love, that our unwillingness to embrace obedience, we deprive ourselves, he sa says here, of a consolation, the consolation of the righteous. To be in a right relationship with God is one of the greatest joys or the greatest joys for us as a human being. To, to, to be in a relationship with him that where there is no impediment to our freely giving ourselves in love or receiving the love that God desires to give us is one of the most beautiful things in life. And often we will sacrifice that to then become, as Ephraim says so well, the plaything of the evil ones, of the demons. And so, you know, th there, there is kind of truth that he says here that, you know, when we aren't willing to embrace the discipline of this, uh, the symbolized by the rod, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child kind of thing, that when we're not willing to embrace the kind of strictness of this, you know, that brings our will into order. And so when we aren't willing to discipline our own will or allow it to be disciplined by living in obedience to another or by being obedience, obedient to the commandments, that we, we don't come to know that that consolation or, or the purification that God desires to give us, but what we open ourselves up is to the uh, being consumed 
you know, but by the evil one himself, by sin. And so we are either consumed by love or we're consumed by, uh, by sin itself and the evil one. And obedience is, again, something that allows us to be, uh, to, to experience ourselves enveloped by the love of God. And again, you know, getting back to David Robel's comment, you know, this sense of that the Father and I will come to you and serve you. And, you know, I think every time we celebrate the, the Holy Eucharist, there, we have to ask ourselves that, that question, who is it that sits at this table and who is it that serves? Because in reality, what Ephraim or what David Robles was speaking about here from the Gospel of John is something that we experience on a daily basis. That God draws us to the altar in order to be able to give us himself. He is the one who serves us and uh, nourishes us to everlasting life. And so we, we see in such a radical way already what John is telling us in the gospel, that our obedience even to the embrace of the, the truth, take, eat, this is my body, take, drink, this is my blood. Unless you eat my body, drink my blood, you have no life within you. That our obedience to this truth offers us something extraordinary, that God himself comes to serve us. Rachel. Oh, I'm sorry, Ambrose. I think I missed first and then Rachel. Uh, Ambrose wrote, uh, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, I, heard, I think we heard this recently in a daily mass gospel, if I remember correctly. And I and the Father are one. Divine union is often seen as the culmination of the contemplative life. Right. And so in divine union, even union between the Father and the Son, you know, is couched within the, the, this discussion of obedience, of doing not one's own will, but of giving oneself over to the other fully. Rachel. Mm -hmm. What if one, not this, no, this is not pertaining to me. When somebody says that, you know, they're, all, they're really talking about themselves. <laughs> Sorry, Rachel, we're not buying it. <laughs> uh, what if one finds there is a request or advice given by someone that contradicts what their conscience tells them? Good question. What if the person is a confessor or spiritual director? For a parent or spouse or friend, this seems pretty clear cut, but a confessor or spiritual director? Uh, well, you know, I think it's obedience is always given to one's conscience. Uh, Newman had this little phrase, you know, uh, about drinking, you know, first to conscience and then to the Pope, but first to conscience, that conscience is the, the, the voice of God within us, the, the vehicle through which, you know, we uh, come to know his will and are often rebuked when we do not embrace his will, it's the faculty through which we hear his voice. And so we are to be ever obedient to it. 
which is not to say that it's infallible. And so I think, you know, humility would at least lead us to examine our, our hearts and seek counsel, you know, whenever we, we feel that there is something that contradicts our conscience, uh, especially, as you said, when it comes from, you know, a confessor or spiritual director here. But even, you know, in these circumstances, certainly that, you know, whenever there's something that is contrary to conscience, we, we cannot respond to it, that our fidelity has to be to that voice within. Eric Chastain. It's interesting reflecting on obedience after Palm Sunday. I found myself wanting to make more sacrifices for Jesus after seeing how much our Lord lowered himself for me. Yeah, you know, there's something very special about the liturgies of Holy Week and how deeply they, they draw us in and do, how concretely they do so as well, you know, with the receiving the palm branches. And I, I think in some ways we are a little bit minimalistic in our, our, our participation in these liturgies. I think in, in some ways this would be in particular a time where we would not be so passive, even in holding those palm branches, or, or in the reading of on Palm Sunday, we move from that the gospel of his entrance into Jerusalem to then reading the entire Passion. And I think this this year it was Luke, right? Uh, and uh, and so we 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 make this movement. Uh, th throughout Holy Week, precisely, again, that we might not enter into it in an abstract way, but see ourselves as uh, active participants in it. And this past Saturday, uh, for our group here at the Oratory called the School of Christi, we read one of Newman's uh, meditations on, and Ren will have this up soon as a podcast, uh, but one of Newman's meditations entitled Behold the Man, and he lays out beautifully in uh, the first paragraph, this kind of theology on gazing on, about gazing on the face of Christ and what that offers us in a kind of intimacy with God and what we see there in gazing upon the face uh, of our Lord. But then he moves very quickly into reflecting upon that face that is so beautiful, uh, being struck and uh, calling us and saying, we are out of necessity uh, to ask ourselves the question, whose hand is it? In the same way that Nathan confronts David, you know, you, you are the man that Newman says we are to see ourselves as the hand that strikes so brutally and in one way or another in our own life, that we, despite being uh, called to gaze upon the, the loving face of the Lord, often respond to a way where we do to that in a way that we do just the opposite. And, uh, and, so, you know, I think our participation in these liturgies is to awaken something within us, both of the horror of sin, you know, as we reflect upon the, the passion itself and the movement to the cross, but also the depth of the love uh, of God that leads him to embrace this on our behalf. And so it's almost, it's, you know, not meant to be an emotional roller coaster, 
for us, but the church works really very hard and so must we to connect what is going on here. It's triumph in tragedy, not in spite of, but in and through the cross, the triumph comes in and through his obedient embrace of the Father's will and love that this triumph comes then of our being freed from our sin and uh, receiving eternal life. Uh, but again, we can't allow ourselves to be passive observers of that. We really have to pray in a very deep way, prepare ourselves for li these liturgies of Holy Week more than we prepare ourselves the entire year. In fact, Lent in some ways should have been preparing us for our, our entrance in, into the Holy Week liturgies. Uh, again, not just sort of a, a, a kind of practice of endurance, but really preparing us on a spiritual level to enter into the deepest mysteries of our faith that we celebrate during the Trudum, especially. Ashley Cashel. Wow, it's a long one. You had entirely too much time to write this. Seems like Newman is on, on the mind because these paragraphs and sections are reminding me of the last part of the quote by St. John Newman. Therefore, I will trust him whatever I am. I can never be thrown away. If I'm in sickness, my sickness may serve him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. If I'm in sorrow, my sorrow may serve him. He does nothing in vain. He knows what he is about. He may take away my friends. He may throw me among strangers. He may make me feel desolate, make my spirit sink, hide my future from me. Still, he knows what he is about. It's one of Newman's most beautiful uh, reflections and meditations. It's found in this little book of everyday meditations uh, that Sophia Press put out, which are excerpts from Newman's longer meditations and devotions. You usually hear this quote on a little, or see it on a little holy card, but it's part of a larger meditation that is absolutely beautiful. Uh, it seems, Ashley writes, that obedience is tied up then in trust and hope, and that these sections we're reading demand a sort of stretching of our trust in God's plan and will for our lives to, to its limits so that God can show us the depths where we might find joy in our obedience, no matter what the circumstance. Yeah, beautifully said. Uh, again, uh, that the, this kind of stretching of ourselves, I, I find is part and parcel of our reading the fathers in the way that we do. And, and this is how we should be reading the scriptures as well that we are allowing ourselves to be stretched in faith to comprehend what is being revealed to us by God. And that is beyond you know, reason and imagination. And you know, to comprehend something of the love of God, of divine love, we have to allow ourselves to be stretched in this way. And Newman in his typical eloquence uh, puts it so beautifully in the quote that Ashley actually gave us that even if we are thrown among strangers and desolate and lose all things, still God knows what he's about. And it's out of this loving and faithful relationship that we are able to make that assent and obedience to embrace the will of God 
as, as it is in our life, knowing that God uh, will make that bear fruit, that whatever is em- embraced in obedient love will bear fruit that is acceptable to God, but uh, in a way that God desires. And so there's nothing better that we could produce by our own hands or in accord with our own judgment. And this takes a lot of, of trust, you know, especially when I think in our, our world uh, evaluates things so much by, you know, productivity or, you know, what seems uh, to be good or worthwhile within our world. Whereas we see here, you know, it's, it's really divine love and this selfless love and self-emptying love uh, that is what gives true value and enduring value to things. Ambrose Little. If we zoom out from seeing the law as a long list of particular commands and rather as a guidebook to the practice of obedience, then it seems clear to the truth that Christ put forth when he said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. For in him is the completion and perfection of obedience. Wow, you guys are on mark tonight. You're on fire with your comments because every one of them are beautiful. And I, I think here again, you capture it beautifully. Okay, let's pan back now, zoom out to what Christ was saying. And this is you know, often a confusing little passage for, for people. And, and Christ could see, you know, the people of his day becoming agitated because for them, the law was really God sharing his own mind with them. And so in some sense, this gave them this special dignity, you know, to no other people had God revealed himself in this way and that God had given them the law. He had guided them in such a way that they could enter into this right relationship with him. And so the law had this special value. Even the rabbi said in the eyes of God, that if they were asked the question, what is God doing in heaven? The rabbis would say, he's reading the Torah. You know, that, so this is the value that placed upon it. And so they became really nervous when they saw Jesus doing and saying the things that he was saying. And so when Ambrose says here, you know, to zoom out, to look at what, how Christ responds to this, that he's come not to abolish it, but to fulfill it, that he is the word of God, the eternal word of God, and that in him is the fulfillment of all that had come before. And that, that tells us something very important, too, in terms of how we approach the scriptures and even read the scriptures, always in, in and through the lens of Christ, that he's the fulfillment of all that has come before, and how, how it is that we interpret and understand what has been revealed to us. Uh, so far from being fearful, you know, it's, you know, in being obedient to him, you know, we are drawn into a greater perfection or by entering into this relationship with him, we are drawn into this greater perfection. Beautifully stated, Ambrose. So we just have one line. And then we'll finish this hypothesis. So do not become a disciple of one who praises himself so as not to learn pride instead of humility. So an interesting way to end things with here with Abba Mark that uh, I think when 
one is seeking counsel and guidance, that one looks for the, the fundamental virtue, you know, that of humility. And so Mark is saying here, you know, one who is praising himself is it attributing to himself uh, that which is good, you know, in his own personal qualities, rather than seeing all of these things coming to him from the hand of God. And so immediately one would be wary of receiving the advice or counsel from such a one, that there's a distort, distortion there uh, in, in, that comes through the, pro, through the pride. And I think that's why elders are difficult to find in our, our day, you know, because I think often we suffer from this kind of pride or self-absorption. And so to find someone who is completely focused upon God can be very challenging. Carol Nypaver, you have the final word here. Is there anything to be gained by obedience when it is done grudgingly against one's conscience? My son has forced was forced to mass for two full years in seminary, hating it all the while. <laughs> oh, of course, you had to throw the whole thing about the stinking mask in here. Uh, well, grudgingly, uh, you know, I think everything that we've been told here, you know, our grudging obedience does not bear the, the fruit that it could for us. And even the grudging nature of it shows that we don't fully understand it or see the love behind it, or, and, or see God within the obedience that we are called to. And, uh, you know, if one is in seminary and being asked to, to wear the mask, you know, hating it, one is really setting aside one's will in a profound fashion. And so you know, one might even say that to be obedient in that regard, uh, when every part of you despises doing it or, you know, is really ca calling you to set aside your will in a deep way. And so there would be value in, in doing that. And I think one in good conscience could wear a mask and in, in obedience, even if one had questions about the value and the purpose of it. And, uh, you know, that... You know, again, it's not simply an accord with our own judgment or reason that makes that obedience bear fruit for us. There are so many things, certainly greater than having to wear a mask, that we have to brace, embrace in obedience in our day-to-day -day life. Far more difficult, you know, and I think to be in any kind of, you know, lasting relationship or for those who are ordained here, you know, uh, just on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, the sacrifice of will is greater than having to put a mask across your face, as unpleasant as that can be. And speaking as a guy with a pretty big beard, I, I hate, hated wearing a mask every minute, too, and felt like I was suffocating half the time. And when you're chewing on your own beard day in and day out while you're trying to preach, it's no, no pleasant task. But so I understand the frustration but I would say that the response and obedience there would be of greater, greater value. And, you know, I know that was a hard, the complicated and hard issue for a lot of people, so I don't want to make light of it. But, you know, I think we can safely say that there's value in it. And so we'll quickly end on that note here for tonight before we... <laughs>
<laughs> get into the whole vaccine masking thing. Uh, but excellent, you know, uh, we're going to, I want to figure out a way to, to have a personal element because I, there's part of that that I really love, the personal engagement with you and hearing your voices. And so I do miss that myself, but boy, your, the questions that you're putting forward are just so very focused and it is allowing us to get through the text. So help me out a little bit. If you have any thoughts or comments about this and your experience of this over the past couple of weeks, the way that we've been going about this, I really want to hear it uh, because I think it's bearing great fruit, but I also don't want the group to lose that personal quality it had. Okay. So when we close there, as always with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.